I'm your host for today's White Coat Story. Today on the podcast, our guest is Dr. David Cook, MD, FACS, who is Vice Chair for Faculty Development and Wellness, Task Force Chair of the Comprehensive Lung Cancer for Screening Program, Head of the Section of General Thoracic Surgery, Associate Director of Cardiothoracic Robotics Program, and Associate Professor at the University of California, or UC Davis. Dr. Cook received his Bachelor of the Arts degree from UC Berkeley, and from there he went on to get his MD from Harvard Medical School. Following that, he did his residency for surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. After that, he completed a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, and then another fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery from University of Michigan School of Medicine. In this podcast, you'll hear Dr. Cook's thoughts on the industry of medicine, the importance of mentors, some skills necessary to succeed in in the field of medicine, what it's like to be on the cutting edge of general thoracic surgery, and what's on the horizon for his field. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Cook. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Hello, Vikram. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm happy to be here. So, first question. In simple words, what type of medicine do you practice, and what does that type of doctor do? So, I am what you call a general thoracic surgeon. So, a general thoracic surgeon is a cardiothoracic surgeon, someone who's trained to operate on the chest cavity and the upper abdomen and uh, the lower neck. So that includes organs like the the, um, trachea, the heart, the lungs, the esophagus, which connects the back of your throat to your stomach and the upper part of your stomach, amongst uh, other things in that area. A general thoracic surgeon is someone who specializes on the non-cardiac or non-heart organs uh, of the chest cavity. That includes the trachea, the lungs, the esophagus, and pretty much everything but the, what's considered the heart and great vessels. Oh, wow. That sounds very interesting. So you cover like a really wide, very large area of the body, right? Uh, yes. And not only a large area of the body, uh, but a, thoracic, a general thoracic surgeon covers a large area of disease. For instance, um, lung cancer is something that we deal with a lot, or esophageal cancer but also non-cancerous things like primary lung failure that might require a lung transplant or people with uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or acid reflux that needs um, um, restorative surgery to help eliminate their acid reflux. Wow, that's that's, that's really interesting. So do you also do the uh, diagnosis? Yeah, so we can be very much involved with the diagnosis. So, for instance, for lung cancer, uh, there is something called lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan. So those individuals who are at the highest risk for developing lung cancer can get a special scan to help detect that, similar to mammography for breast cancer or colonoscopy for colon cancer. Now, that is uh, a multidisciplinary program. So not only thoracic surgeons, but pulmonologists, um, uh, medical oncologists, radiologists. Um, but at our institution at UC Davis Health, the, the lung cancer screening program um, is led 
by general thoracic surgeons. So you end up working with a lot of other specialists uh, in your daily work? Yes. Uh, one good thing about being a cardiothoracic surgeon is that we are used to the team approach to applying medicine. So if you're, say, if you're a heart surgeon, then uh, someone who primarily operates on the heart, then that person is generally part of what's called a heart team, which includes cardiologists, um, uh, perfusionists, those people who help initiate heart-lung bypass machine. For a general thoracic surgeon like myself, um, I am involved with what's called a multidisciplinary tumor board, which is a team uh, uh, that is composed of many different types of doctors who are involved with cancer care. And if you're a transplant surgeon, you might be part of a transplant committee that really um, has many different types of physicians who do deep dive into individuals to determine if they should be listed for lung or heart transplantation. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. And when you make all of these diagnoses, what kind of symptoms do the patients complain of? Well, it's interesting. So say if you have esophageal cancer, uh, you may have trouble swallowing or eating. You may get the sensation that things are getting stuck uh, when you're trying to swallow. If you have lung cancer, you might develop a new wheezing or you might start coughing up blood or having difficulty breathing. And, of course, if you might need a lung or heart transplant, then um, you'll have symptoms related to that, which include shortness of breath or fatigue. Some individuals, uh, they might be developing cancer and have no type of symptoms, and that's where screening comes in involved, where you identify patients who are at high risk, and then you do a but are asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms, and then you do a screen to determine if you could find any early-stage cancers in those individuals. You, do you deal with, like, a wide array of symptoms? You uh, mentioned that you're on the tumor board uh, mm-hmm. with, a couple, with a bunch of other doctors. So do you deal more specifically with those types of diagnoses? Yes, we can. So my personal practice is involved um, uh, with the lion's share of cancer. So uh, I'm really a thoracic surgical oncologist, really uh, helping patients with lung cancer, esophageal cancer, cancers of the rib cage, or, or other tumors. Uh, so that's uh, the, the majority of my practice. Uh, many of those individuals may have symptoms, or some of them may not have symptoms, and their cancers were found by accident, um, secondary to investigations for other medical problems that they may have at the time. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Very cool. So let's, let's go back to your past a little bit. What made you want to become a doctor? Well, I grew up in Oakland, California, uh, which is in the uh, California Bay Area, and I'm a product of the uh, Oakland uh, Unified School District, which is the public school system. And um, I wanted to be a physician uh, ever since I was a young kid in elementary school. And um, that's partly for two reasons. One is my mom was very sick uh, at the time, and I could see that it was physicians that really restored her back to health, to good health. And I really uh, uh, liked surgery, um, and, I th- and I saw surgery as something that I could do uh, in the future, that uh, the, the use of your hands to uh, um, rid individuals of disease and to bring them to good health um, was something that resonated with me. Yeah, definitely, especially having your mom go through an illness. That would definitely have a big effect on you. 
Yeah, um, family trauma like that is not easy, uh, but it can uh, make an indelible impression, and that impression can uh, push you forward into uh, who knows what positive directions that can come of it. Yeah, definitely. So now that you are a doctor, what's an average day like for you? So my average day is very um, uh, chock full of, of stuff. So uh, really I operate about twice a week uh, uh, doing um, different types of procedures. Uh, currently I am doing minimally invasive surgery using a robot uh, and um, uh, doing lung resections for cancer uh, using a robotic system. Um, we train the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeons. So we have a, what's called a residency program where uh, medical students come to us into our program once they graduate and we train them to be cardiothoracic surgeons. So I do a lot of education and teaching in that regard. And also I do research. And um, with that, I, I do what's called health services research, uh, which uh, often entails taking large databases of information and answering clinical questions from that data trove of information. And also working with individuals and patients to empower them. That's called patient-centered uh, outcomes research uh, to improve their own outcomes and, and what interventions and methodology we can, methodologies we can do to help with that. And so um, that involves various different activities and meetings and uh, collaborations throughout the week. So it's a very busy week. Yeah, very busy indeed. Uh, so it sounds like you're on the very cutting edge of your field. What's that like? It's, it's good. It's, 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 it's rewarding and exciting because um, we make the decisions that shape our specialty. Um, we make decisions and in, in innovations and interventions that really help our community. And we make decisions and innovations that really facilitate the training of the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeons. So being on the forefront of that is very rewarding and very exciting. What was your feeling when you conducted surgery, like for the first time with a robot? Well, uh, I adopted robotic surgery after I had been in practice for, for over 10 years. So I was very comfortable uh, with the anatomy of a patient and very comfortable with our systems in place that ensures patient safety and quality outcomes. So once you have a system in place that ensures patient safety and quality outcomes, as well as a competent surgeon, because really a robot is only a tool, and a tool is only as good as the person who wields it, then it was very easy to adopt robotics. I really like robotic surgery because uh, it provides sort of next generation technology to augment what I'm doing as a surgeon, which includes artificial intelligence uh, and uh, three-dimensional uh, graphics and, uh, ch and changes in the system that improves surgeon ergonomics and uh, the ability of the surgeon to operate without pain and discomfort. So with robotic surgery, that must enable you to operate on people who are across the country or even the world. Have you ever done that before? Not yet. So that's something that's not active now. So I'm still in the room with the patient when uh, we are doing the operation, although not at the patient's bedside and not what we call scrubbed in or, or in a sterile gown. Um, historically, uh, we haven't been able to do remote robotics, is the sort of concept that you described. 
that was the initial plan when these systems were developed because uh, these, these systems were developed for military applications, specifically the ability for um, uh, a surgeon to operate on uh, one of our, our uh, uh, troops uh, on, in a forward position. Um, but, uh, and the reason why that hasn't been achieved in a meaningful way is because of the, uh, the, the lag in regards to data that's, that's sent to, to manipulate the robot. Now, with the whole 5G network that's uh, currently in place in many places, uh, there have been pilot studies showing remote surgery. Uh, for instance, in China, uh, there is a, a group that operated on a pig uh, that was across town uh, from, from, that, uh, from the surgeon. And I believe there is a recent uh, uh, animal study in Europe uh, where they uh, operated uh, across continents. So um, with the whole 5G system where the lag is extremely diminished, uh, I, see, I do see robotic uh, uh, telesurgery uh, in humans uh, down the road. So uh, I heard you mention the word surgeon ergonomics. Uh, what do you mean by that? So um, some people say that surgery is a young person's game because um, there can be uh, different injuries that occur during surgery similar to what you would find in a um, professional uh, concert hall musician uh, who may develop injuries with playing their instrument uh, for years. Those injuries can include um, uh, um, back injuries, uh, cervical spine injuries, uh, joint injuries to the lower extremities and the upper extremities. Um, that, is, that can be a result from standing uh, for long periods of time, uh, looking down through um, uh, at the, the patient table uh, using what are called um, loops, which are uh, glasses with magnifying elements to them. With the robot, you're operating sitting down in, the, in a chair that's ergonomically uh, fashioned to your spinal curvature, and your ability to look into the three-dimensional monitor is designed to take tension and pressure uh, off your, your, your cervical spine and your hands and your wrists. So uh, really, uh, robotics uh, really caters to the ergonomic needs of a surgeon. Oh, yeah, that seems very helpful. So even though you're not uh, operating on someone who's across the world, it's still improving uh, surgery overall. Yeah, so it, it is well understood that minimally invasive surgery, especially robotic surgery, is beneficial to the patient uh, in regards to uh, a faster return to work, diminished pain, um, uh, smaller incisions, uh, um, uh, faster discharge from the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not as commonly uh, understood that ergonomics, uh, that the, the ergonomics of uh, minimally invasive surgery, specifically robotic surgery, is favorable to the surgeon as well. So in many cases, it's a win-win situation. Yeah, definitely. So uh, after conducting surgery and going through your whole extremely busy day, how do you decompress? So really, I have a young child, so uh, whatever I could do to um, um, spend my time with her and, and, my, and the rest of my family, uh, my, my wife, uh, is good uh, time to decompress. We, we like enjoy watching uh, the, the Mandalorian, which is a TV show on Disney Plus, and on the day that we're filming this, recording this podcast, I think the a new episode is being released, um, but also hiking. Uh, with my family, um, bike rides, 
uh, and traveling, um, which is difficult to do during this current pandemic. Um, but those are all activities I like to do to decompress, read, and listen to podcasts. Yeah, that sounds very relaxing. So going back to your work, what do you think is the most challenging or difficult part? Well, the most difficult part uh, is the surgery itself, really. You know, we're doing complex things, um, and there really isn't any um, room for significant error because uh, significant error can uh, lead to patient harm. So uh, that, you know, fundamentally is the most difficult thing that we do. Uh, number two is sort of what we call perioperative care. So perioperative care is care for the patient before surgery as well as care for the patient after surgery. Because really we're not technicians just operating and walking away, but we're taking a patient through a journey of restorative health. Uh, so that includes uh, pre-op uh, coordination, uh, coordination within the, the operating room, coordination while the patient is, is recovering in the hospital, and coordination to go home. Uh, and then in cancer, what we call long-term cancer survivorship. And so um, following the patient for five years to, to see if the cancer comes back, and if it does, what can we do to ameliorate it? So uh, those, that's the sort of second uh, difficult thing. And the third, especially in academic medicine, is really balancing the challenges of academic medicine which includes patient care, research, and education. And uh, making all those things happen in a positive manner uh, can be tricky. So I've had a, a couple of other surgeons on the podcast, and they've all said, or a lot of them have said, that they really don't like the paperwork. Do you find that uh, to hold true with yourself? Yeah, so, you know, I went into medicine to, to care for patients. And I think um, um, there is a lot of what we call charting and, and um, quote-unquote paperwork, although now it's all electronic health record. And I'm a really I'm a adamant that m me and my team, uh, the surgeons on my team that, that, that report to me, shouldn't be, shouldn't be um, burdened with a lot of that type of paperwork because that's not our role in the healthcare ecosystem. Our role in the healthcare ecosystem is to care for patients and, and make their lives better. Um, healthcare is a multi-billion dollar, not trillion dollar industry. And there's a lot of waste and a lot of cost in healthcare within the United States. And the reality is, is that those costs can be attributed to a few things. One is the cost of medication. So, um, uh, pharmacy costs or, 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 or costs that they attribute to the medications that patients uh, require. That's a huge amount of, of cost in our healthcare system and something that's not appreciated and something needs to be done. The second uh, are administrative costs in healthcare. And administrative costs refer to uh, all the non-MD, non-RN, non-PA, um, what we call full-time equivalents or FTEs, that are involved with healthcare, and really uh, those administrative costs are involved with the billing components of healthcare, uh, the collections and reimbursements, and other non-specific directly patient care-related items. And that's something else that's not understood by the lay public as well. I think the lay public just looks at doctors and nurses and think, well, they get paid so much, that's where the, 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 the costs are, or that doctors and nurses are not running their practices efficiently. That is not the case. 
the, the, the big players in regards to costs are uh, drug prices and administrative costs. So uh, having mentioned all of this waste and paperwork and all of that, is there anything else that you would like to see changed in medicine? Yes, I think um, one is we need to eliminate the partisan dialogue around the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act has really benefited millions of Americans throughout the country, um, and many people, uh, there have been uh, analyses that looked at certain uh, individuals and they ask, uh, do they like, do they like their, their uh, health care plan? And they, they say yes, and they, then they're asked, do you, do you like Obamacare? And they'll say no, not realizing that the two are exactly the same. Uh, in the way the Affordable Care Act is set up. And, I, and I'm able to care for more patients and provide help for, to more patients because of the Affordable Care Act. There needs to be either uh, uh, improvements upon the Affordable Care Act that need to happen, uh, or we need um, a single-payer system of some sort, um, which will probably never happen, but at least we can have a public option uh, that's available to individuals uh, and to their employers and to uh, smooth out the rough edges of the current Affordable Care Act. So let's go back to your past for a little bit. How do you believe your upbringing contributed to where you, were to, to where you are today? Well, both my parents are retired elementary school principals, so they really focused on the importance of education and uh, expanding your, your, your mind and your uh, professional uh, uh, tool set. Uh, they also empowered me to believe in myself, uh, even though it, it was fairly difficult um, being an um, underrepresented minority uh, in a specialty that at the time did not have a whole lot of uh, minorities in it. And so that helped me to tackle adversity and to um, um, not be put off by setbacks uh, and, and to be resilient. So I, I think I really uh, uh, credit my, my parents and then also my older brother and sister who served as role models for me. They weren't, they're, they're not physicians, uh, but they served as role models to uh, really uh, persevere in your goals and to uh, have dedication to community. So aside from your siblings and your parents, do you have any other role models? Yeah, so uh, again, my, my parents and my siblings um, but also I have mentors, and uh, many of my mentors are in cardiothoracic surgery, and others have been in other specialties. And I believe in what's called cross-cultural mentorship, so your mentor doesn't have to look like you, so they don't have to be of your race or your ethnicity or your, your gender, um, but they really have to have a, a focused interest, uh, altruistic interest in your um, success. And I've had many folks who... Uh, have fit that bill. Uh, one early mentor of mine was my, my, my research advisor when I was at uh, uh, undergraduate college at UC Berkeley. Uh, and her name is Marian Koshlin, and she uh, ran an immunology lab there. And she, we really had very little in common uh, other than our interest in immunology. And she really uh, put me on an academic uh, path uh, of success uh, that really helped me move forward. I then went on to Harvard Medical School in Boston, 
and I had multiple mentors there who really um, uh, pushed me into the right path of academic medicine, specifically surgery, and then moving on to general surgery. I did my general surgery at the Massachusetts General Hospital there, and mentors such as uh, uh, Michael Watkins, who's an African-American vas- vascular surgeon there, uh, and uh, Douglas Matisson, who at the time was the head of thoracic surgery there, really helped me, uh, push me forward. And then my final fellowship was at the University of Michigan in cardiothoracic surgery, and uh, D- Dr. Mark Oringer and Alan Pickens uh, and Richard Prager and Andrew Chang and Christina Lau um, uh, all um, helped me to become the thoracic surgeon I am today. And uh, after a fellowship, I came to UC Davis, and um, uh, many folks, including Jim Goodnight and and um, um, uh, as my de- I'm my first department chair, and Diana Farmer is my current department chair. Uh, uh, David Wisner, uh, who was interim chair be- between them, and my first division chief, uh, Dr. Nihilus Young, as well. And current, and beginning July 1st, uh, 2021, I'll be the founding uh, division chief uh, of general thoracic surgery here at UC Davis, and really um, expanding the what we call quaternary care, which fundamentally means we can provide everything for our our greater Sacramento, Central Valley, and Northern California communities. And the individuals that sort of helped me understand um, my potential as a division chief uh, are Dr. Robert Higgins, who's department chair at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Department of Surgery, and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Julie Freischlag, who is... uh, uh, the CEO of Wake Forest Medicine and the president-elect of the American College of Surgeons, uh, who have all been external mentors and, and guidance for me to help uh, fashion my career. Wow. So mentorship is that de- was definitely very uh, integral to your success. It is important for individuals to find a mentor to help them navigate um, their career path. Uh, and it's, you can't really do this alone. Um, and, uh, again, I want to stress that there is ability for cross-cultural mentorship. So um, there is a saying, you can't be what you can't see. And I don't believe in that saying because then it becomes a vicious cycle. Again, there's not many people in the type of medicine I do that look like me. So, therefore, if I just wait to see someone like myself, I may not be where I am today. So you can mentor someone who doesn't look like you. Yeah, Definitely. So uh, you talked about your experience a lot, and <laughs> it's a lot of experience. So uh, through all of that, uh, what skills should I develop at a at this age to become successful like you? Well, I think uh, you're already on your path, I think, by hosting this podcast. And and the reason why I say that is because uh, obviously you have the ability to listen, uh, you have attention to details, so be able to follow up uh, questions with what you're hearing, uh, and be able to see things through other people's perspective. And that's how you communicate. That's how you have quality interprofessional relationships, is that you're able, you have to be able to see life through someone else's perspective. So if you encounter someone who is belligerent, maybe they're not belligerent because they're just a bad person. Maybe they're having a bad day. Uh, maybe something is going on in their lives that is, create, that is creating this negative energy. And having the ability to listen to people and to understand their perspectives uh, could get you very far in life. 
Yeah, of course. You have to understand what someone else is going through to relate to them. Exactly, exactly. Being on the cutting edge of your field, I can't think of another person who's more qualified to answer this. Uh, where do you see the medical industry or your own field in 10 years? So my field is, is, has extremely exciting possibilities uh, in the next 10 years. So from a, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about thoracic. So specifically in thoracic oncology, we're looking at new medications, so immunotherapy, medications that trick your immune system to fight tumors, uh, and targeted therapy, medications to, um, uh, that target uh, the genetic profile of tumors uh, to destroy tumors. And then you combine that with surgery. Um, you have the ability to have what are called neoadjuvant treatment regimens. So you treat someone with immunotherapy to boost their immune system, and then you operate on them. Um, and that has a better chance for curing our patients. Uh, advances in robotic surgery. So as you brought up earlier, the uh, uh, tele-robotics, so the ability for me to uh, sit down on the console and operate on a patient in, in a rural underserved area that is remote that will provide, that, that could potentially uh, help fight uh, health disparities in our rural population by providing them with expert surgical care. So that's just, that's on the thoracic oncology side. Transplantation, uh, we are doing things like ex vivo perfusion. So if you take a set of potential donor lungs that may be sort of beat up and not in great physical condition, we might be able to improve the quality of those lungs with um, what are called ex vivo perfusion machines and then transplant those patients, those lungs that have been improved into individuals restore and saving their lives. And we might be able to do gene therapy in those lungs through these ex vivo perfusion machines. And then in cardiovascular surgery, uh, there is so much on the horizons, such as small, uh, what we call transvascular interventions, where we change valves and other things through small pokes in the groin into blood vessels, as opposed to doing major surgery, and then doing different types of robotic heart surgery. All in the while, uh, our workforce is becoming more and more diversified. So we're seeing new voices and uh, cognitive perspectives in our specialty um, through efforts such as what you're doing now, um, recruiting the next generation and the best and the brightest uh, into our specialty. So I think our 10-year forecast is, is extremely stunning. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. Uh, like not only in the, the medical and technical perspective, but also the social perspective, like you said, uh, more diversity in medicine. Uh, as I've exactly, learned from exactly. other from previous podcasts, that's like really needed. Exactly, that's very needed to help our patients, uh, and it's on the horizon. Yeah, that's like you said, very exciting. So, final question: What is something that you would recommend to children aspi aspiring to be doctors? What I recommend for children aspiring to be doctors is to um, continue on your journey. Um, undaunted. If there is something that you like, that you feel you want to explore, you should explore it. Whether someone tells you that you should or you shouldn't, uh, if, if that's what your intellectual curiosity takes you, then you should follow your intellectual curiosity. Well, that is 
great advice and very inspiring. Before we wrap up, do you have anything else that you want to add that I haven't asked? No, I think take-home uh, uh, messages are uh, find a mentor, and that mentor does not have to look like you, uh, but they have to be invested in your success uh, in an altruistic sort of way. Um, follow your intellectual curiosity because uh, your intellectual curiosity will, will likely take you in the in the direct in the career path that 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 would that you would enjoy uh, the most. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was definitely a very good podcast, very inspiring, inspirational, and educational. Well, thank you very much, Vikram. I really appreciate you taking the time to invite me out today. Uh, for this wonderful conversation. And have a wonderful rest of the weekend. You too.